for me and the color was the only clean shirt I had. So you guys get a little bit more high church today. Um, it's, it's surreal to be in this space. It was actually about nine years ago when me and my family graduated from RTS in Charlotte, North Carolina and came here for a year of church planning apprenticeship. Um, so being back in this space, like just brings wave of emotion on me. It was in this space where the week after I was ordained, I baptized my son in this space. And so much of what we experience in our time here has been what we have sought to recreate in Corvallis and planting Christ Central. So it really is a wonderful joy to be back with you this evening. Um, this summer, uh, I had the, uh, not privilege, but well, I had the, whatever it was to actually finish uh, my doctoral work and finish uh, my doctorate. And one of the places of emphasis that I really kind of leaned heavily on is considering the relationship of the gospel to culture. And I spent a lot of time looking at the Celtic church, which I have a lot of affinity with, but also looking at so many different churches over the past hundred years, especially in America and the different denominations. One of the fascinating things about it though, is that when you look at all the different religious uh, groups and the traditions is that you could almost superimpose them back to the first century. Um, and it really works. There were all these different ideas about how the kingdom was going to come. You look at the approach of like Herod and it was one of accommodation, compromise, that hopefully we can just get along with our neighbors in a way that, that God will, will bless it and things will turn out okay. Uh, we've seen that type of approach with kind of the mainline church over the past hundred years. Another group of the first century was the Zealots, and they thought that they would fight for it and that it was their duty to maintain the purity of it in this place. And we've seen that even in the past decade where we've seen people really get combative uh, with their faith and thinking that that's the way that the kingdom is going to come. And then there was also a third option back then, the way of the scenes, that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were, where Qumran was. Um, and they had the idea that, you know what, all hope is lost. We can't engage this culture because it's so toxic, so broken. So what we're gonna do is just actually um, repeal from it and we are going to separate ourselves from it. That we are just gonna focus on ourselves and our lives and our hearts. Um, and hopefully the kingdom will come in some way. And you see this, um, uh, kind of with the way that the Benedictine option has been advocated recently. Now, each one of them thought that they could inaugurate the kingdom in a certain way, and they thought that this was the right way to do this. Um, and I, I don't think that this is born out of any type of malicious intent. It, like All these approaches were actually born out of a sincere desire for God and him, for his kingdom, but all of them had a little bit of distortion in them. One of the things that I appreciate with Jesus, I mean, there's a lot I appreciate, but one of the things that I appreciate um, is the parables, the stories he gives us, which in many ways just expands our imagination and our understanding about what the kingdom is like, where he's able to say, well, the kingdom's not like this, but the kingdom is like this, and the kingdom's like that. And this is what's happening when the kingdom is at place. So um, we're going to look at probably some of the shortest parables where he describes what the kingdom is like. Um, and for me, they're, they're ones that just I always go back to because there's such a profound depth with them in a way that I think just stirs our imagination and can help us. So uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures or the order of worship in front of you, we're going to be in Matthew 13, and we are going to read 
um, verses 44 through 46. So listen, this is the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. And it's given to you because he loves you. Will you please pray with me? Lord, bless the words of my mouth. Meditation and conversation of all of our hearts may it be acceptable and pleasing to you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Just pray that you will align my human word to your divine word. And if I should say anything not from you, that you would just close my mouth or close the ears of those listening. That your word and your kingdom and your gospel will be proclaimed truly. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when we look at these stories, the first thing that we see is that there's certain attributes about the kingdom that are demonstrated here. The first one that's kind of uh, with both of them is there's a certain level of hiddenness, especially that's a very explicit in the first one. But what's interesting is the term that he uses to describe it, hidden. It's explicit in the first parable and presupposed in the second one. And it's one of those words that actually has a little bit more heft and a little bit more meaning to it. It's the same word that he uses and Matthew eleven twenty five, when he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, but revealed them to babies. Not even the most impressive specialist can discern the kingdom at work sometimes, but sometimes it's the simple, it's the babies, it's the kids, which is one of the reasons that we need them in a space like this. We don't just outsource them and stuff, but they reveal so much about the kingdom that we need to learn from them. And I think it's incredible and beautiful. But I think this verse helps us understand how Jesus is using it because the kingdom isn't just this hidden reality that it's invisible out there that just nobody can see, but rather I would say it's enveloped and it's this guiding principle of the whole creative redemptive order and reality. It's embodied in places that unfortunately so many times we fail to recognize. It's at work in this world in this reconciling redemptive power, whether we pay attention to it or not. Just like that treasure is in that field. It was there, but it wasn't acknowledged. It wasn't noticed for so long. Or like that pearl, it's present, it's there. But can we distinguish it? Can we recognize it? Are we actually looking for it? And I think that this is an important part of the kingdom because in a way it is working. It is functioning in this way and it's all around us and we see it. We see it with the sacrificial love of the mother who turns the chaos of the home into order and just in selfless uh, love is pouring herself into her children and raising them. We see it in the friend who is willing to cancel a busy meeting to go sit with the friend at a coffee shop who is struggling. We see it with those that are actually serving the common good and understand that their vocations are all part of God's redemptive purposes for this world. And we see it in the ways that so often we can instill dignity, worth, and love in other people. 
But the mystery isn't the thing that both of these parables really emphasize. The thing that's really addressed here is the value, the value of the kingdom. And here he compares it to the two things, the treasure and the pearl of great price. And both of these things would have been worth extraordinary amounts in these times. If you even just go back and see uh, how pearls were, according to modern standards, um, Caesar gave Brutus's mother a string of pearls worth $400,000. Likewise, Cleopatra was said to have this pearl that was worth so much. It was worth, once again, by modern day standards, $4 million. And even in the first century, they were seen as valuable. And both of these parables are showing us the great value of the kingdom. And that the external value is so wonderful, so great, it actually leads to this existential joy. That, sorry about that. Uh, that uh, and that's the climax of these parables, is that the main attribute of this kingdom is joy. That it's so wonderful, but it can't just help but make your heart come alive and that you just see what is happening here and it's just so wonderful. Do we think about joy? When we just goes up in us. See, the fact is, is that we, we were made for joy. We were meant to experience this type of joy. That was what God had for Adam and Eve in the garden. That was the way that this world was supposed to be. We see it even in the first question of the shorter catechism. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, for me, this was probably one of the most paradigm-shifting moments of my Christian journey where um, even last week at my church, I, I shared about my struggles with depression. And I had this very bad, distorted sense and idea about what Christianity was, that it was just rule followings and stuff. But once I saw that it was actually this relationship and that it was actually this place where you could experience a transformative joy that makes sense in this broken world, a type of transformative joy that gives me hope when I am struggling with sin or when other people are struggling with sin or that we just feel like there's so much chaos around us that we can have this type of relationship with God that gives us joy. And it's one of those things that is completely transforming that there is something better. We even see it in the history of the church. If you uh, look at the story of Augustine or if you're overeducated, Augustine, um, he was this bishop in North Africa. And I love the fact that one of the greatest thinkers and theologians of the church came from Africa. And he became a convert later on in life. Now, for him, he always wanted to be a philosopher. He thought that's where the good life was. He thought that's where meaning and satisfaction uh, would come from, that, he, that that's what he wanted. But unfortunately, for him, he was trapped in this life of lust and sexual immorality in a way that, according to Greco-Roman ideas, meant that he was disqualified because of these defiled desires. So his enslavement to lust just made him feel to this place of despair. And one day, in a garden, and he hears a little child singing, take up and read. And what did he read? Paul's epistle to the Romans. And it changed everything for him. 
it gave them such an uh, and what he discovered in christianity is what jesus speaks about here this type of overarching joy that is just so transformative that god can give us a joy that triumphs over the brokenness pain and difficulty of this world but more than that can actually sustain us through it and i think that's important you read about it in the confessions but we also see it in so many other people's lives henry now mother Teresa, athanasius so many more. And Jesus is saying that this is how valuable the kingdom is. That you need to recognize it. You need to believe it. You need to receive it. And it's even what Paul says in Philippians 3, the scripture passage that he was reading. What is everything else compared to it? Rubbish. And he actually uses a swear there to describe it. That's how much better Christianity is in the gospel compared to everything else in this world. But we know that it's not merely all just roses, lollipops, and rainbows. Um, there's this very implicit contrast in describing the kingdom that I think for me to think about is helpful, especially as we look at kind of our unique cultural moment. Um, and you see that with the field. We read this and we think of some nice, lush, pasture land, green, maybe in Ireland or something. Um, that's not how fields were in the first century over here. Um, they would have been much more filled with potholes, lack of light. I would have felt awful. And yet, what does the person do when they discover this treasure? They are willing to buy the singles the poison ivy, the poison oak, the complicated gopher tunnels that wreak havoc on the septic systems. And he buys this incredible plot of land with all the liabilities attached to it. And if this treasure is a mystery, the field in which it's buried can be interpreted not only as the world, but the place where this mystery's power lies hidden. And what you see is that this treasure actually transforms the entire worth of the liabilities around it, that it makes sense, and that you want it to. What we see is that the kingdom is the inbreaking of something good, something beautiful, in the midst of something that is very broken. And we feel that, especially in our own cultural moment. And when we look back over this past years and the struggles with COVID, we think about the riots, we think about our state on fire, and it just feels like there is such this oppressive weight of brokenness around us. And yet, we see that these things don't have to be just liabilities to the gospel, but can actually become opportunities for it. That this treasure, this gospel, could actually transform these things and address it. The fact is, is that we are in a brand new missionary age of the church that at no other time in church history do you, can we really draw parallels on. When we look at uh, everything that globalism and secularism have done, like we, we are kind of pioneers in this sense. But we can rely on these truths and what is conveyed here. And that shows us that the volume of the kingdom embraces that, that contrast of it. But now we see the final thing. And that is the cost. Cost of the kingdom. The resounding refrain in both of these parables is that the joy and the value of the kingdom is worth 
so much that the cost can be everything. Now, I want us to sort of consider this on maybe three different aspects or three different layers, because I think that there's some more meaning here that we could just sort of pull on the strings and untangle here. Um, the first one is thinking about this personally. And this is what we've been talking about so far and alluding to. And when you discover the gift, joy, Christian faith, what the king of the cosmos has done in sending his son to deal with this problem of guilt and shame of sin, it's overwhelming. It melts your heart. You see a type of love there. And it's such a profound personal joy that personally can cost you everything. That's one of the scary things about Christianity compared to more traditional religions. More traditional religions can be very contractual. You need to do this, and then this will happen to you. It's, I've done my part, you've done your part. But in an economy where it's all grace, and it's all a gift, is there nothing that he could ask of you? cost everything. But the second aspect, aspect that I want us to look at is kind of the corporate implications. Now, we may look at the church and our faith community, and it could feel like a field. It could feel like that field with all the sinkholes, the poison oak, and everything else. And yet, the treasure is here. We may get people who make poison oak and sinkholes look more appealing, but we need to love them. We may be forced to follow Jesus in very uncomfortable places. and may mean that following Jesus and this great treasure, that our preferences aren't going to be met because of where he is calling us to. And it may mean staying faithfully committed to him and cost us everything. And more than that, it may mean that we need to give up our own small ideas of what the court of what the kingdom needs to look like and how it's going to come. Now, maybe this is a time to rekindle that very historic and wonderful posture of the Christian faith and just have faith that God is sovereign over. But the reality of this corporate thing that we need to see here is that for those people that might look like liabilities, maybe those people that we don't prefer, the reality is, is that we need them. Everyone is made in the image of God in such a way that it's not just these broad attributes that you have. Um, you need to know that there are certain aspects of the Imago Dei of God's image in himself that he has so imprinted upon you that they are reflected in such a unique way that if other people want to truly understand God and his image, they need you in their life. And that is such a remarkable thing that when the church comes together, we see that we need everyone here to fully understand God. And it's profound, and it's powerful, and it's deeply affirming. But there's a final layer that I want us to consider, and that will be maybe the theological. Now, we probably almost always exclusively read these parables in terms of the person, through the lens of like what Paul said, 
but this is just all about the Christian faith and how amazing it is. Now, I hope that in saying this, I don't just dismantle everything that we say or that I've said, but rather I think it's something that if we consider, it establishes what I've said, and that is this. What if the primary thrust or the purpose of this parable isn't about you? So often we interpret ourselves as the treasure hunter. But what if it's not you? What if this is actually about God? What if that treasure and that pearl is you in this world? What if that treasure is you being restored, you redeemed back in relationship with him? And I think that's an important thing to think about. And I would even encourage you right now in this moment, time to have some group participation. Think about maybe the hardest time of your life. The time when you felt like you were just struggling with that sin that you cannot get rid of. That time when that traumatic thing maybe happened to you. That time when you felt so far away from God that you are at best unlovable and you can't even love yourself. It's usually in that moment God says, yes, I love you, I want you, and you are worth an incredible cost to me. Because you need to know that you are that treasure, and you are that pearl of great Christ. And he doesn't just merely love you, but he actually likes you enough to have you in this kingdom that it won't cost him a material amount, it'll actually cost him an infinite amount. And what is the cost that God is willing to pay? for this kingdom and for you to be a part of this kingdom, his son, his son that he has known from eternity past all the way to eternity future. He's willing to pay that cost for you. And that's profound. And then we read, and we're talking about joy in all of this. We read in Hebrews 12 too, that it tells us that for the joy set before him, that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame of it. Now, that's, I think, another one of those passages that we might not read rightly. So often we think of that as, like, the hurdle that he has to go through. That uh, the joy before him was just the exaltation and uh, the ascension and getting back to the Father and the Godhead and heaven. But the joy that was before him was also you. Just as the kingdom gave this treasure hunter so much joy that he was willing to cost everything, you are the joy to Jesus. He delights in you, and he loves you. And I think that is the challenge of the kingdom for us. Or maybe we need to pause and ask, is this kingdom that is so precious, so valuable to God, that valuable to you? And do you believe that you are this precious to God. Yes, you are. The parables in this chapter are challenging us on these levels with both an understanding and action. We need to embrace them both because if it's just all understanding and no action, it gets very sterile, but action without understanding is just exhausting and useless. My prayer for us here my prayer for you is that we would understand 
the value of this kingdom and the joy that is found within it. And that we will see that in many ways, this is just reflecting how God views the kingdom and how he views you. Will you please? Oh, before in prayer, um, during the next song, we have all the communion elements set up uh, at the various tables. So I would ask you to um, go and gather those elements for communion um, during the next song. So join me as we close in prayer. Dearly Father, I do thank you for the kingdom. I thank you for this reality that is so profound on so many levels that we could just spend an eternity. We will just unpacking the realities of it and discovering the joy that is possible within it. But Lord, we pray that we will have just the slightest foretaste of that now. And as we look at your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, that we will have this joy, that we will have this hope, that we will embody it in such a way that for so many of our neighbors who are confused, that they will see a non-anxious presence embodiment in us that is just established on the goodness of this kingdom. And what we see there. Help us, Lord, do this in faith. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.